Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. David Rosmarin is an associate professor at Harvard Medical School and a program director at McLean Hospital. He's a specialist in anxiety and the author of the book Thriving with Anxiety. He shared his strategies into doing exactly that with Hannah McInnes. You start off the book by saying that all people fall broadly into four defined groups of behavioural and emotional health. Can you start off this conversation by outlining those four groups and telling us which one of them this book is for or who this book is for? Sure, absolutely. So broadly speaking, there are four categories, if you will, of mental and emotional health. And I would say that all people fall into these groups at any point in time. And the reason why I say that is because people can shift and they often do shift from one group to the other and back again. Um, And I've seen people shift all the way down and all the way up. So just because somebody's in a category now doesn't mean anything about the future. So broadly, those categories are first people who are flourishing. And uh, these people have no discernible mental health concerns. They're doing great. Their businesses are doing great. Careers are doing great. Relationships are fine. Um, I'm actually the most concerned about this group, interestingly, (laughs) but uh, we'll come back to them. Then there are people who are languishing. People who are languishing, Adam Grant put it best, I think, in his you know, seminal uh, New York Times op-ed during, during the COVID pandemic. People are feeling meh, M-E-H, meh, right? Not distressed, but certainly not flourishing. And that, uh, that category includes a, a, a growing group of people, unfortunately, um, who are simply ambling through life and not doing great, but you know, not necessarily struggling. The last two groups I'll speak about together are those who are distressed and then severely distressed. And here is where you really need clinical interventions to deal with clinical levels, significantly impairing or distressing levels of anxiety, depression, substance use, eating disorder, whatever it is. And the difference between those two is one can be handled within the context of a person's life, like they're still going to work, they're still going to go to school, they're still going to be able to function. And then the people who are severely distressed need more intensive care that they might have to go into a facility for a period of time to sort of move away from their environmental context. So those are the four groups. People go up and down. This book, I would say, I think it's for everyone. I think it's for people who are flourishing. I think it's for people who are languishing. And for distressed and severely distressed, the only caveat is it's not the only solution. It's going to be one of others Um, that are going to be used because um, usually people who are distressed or severely distressed need a little more support than just a self-help approach. So if you're flourishing and, and, you know, where are these people who just know they're flourishing? (laughs) Lucky them um, all the time. Why do you need a book about anxiety? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, and I mentioned this before, I'm the most concerned about people who are flourishing today because often those are the people who don't see it coming. In the beginning of the pandemic, something very fascinating happened in my office. Patients who had anxiety disorders before the pandemic and they were getting treatment, when March, the end of March happened, they actually did fine because they were inoculated against it. They had gotten the help. The people who did the worst were the ones who had no history of anxiety before. And all of a sudden, they were sitting ducks, had no skills, and were toppled. So they had, the, in fact, the biggest 
decline because they had they weren't expecting it at all, and then all of a sudden. So I think people who are flourishing definitely could use some prevention um, because we're all going to hit some level of anxiety at some point in our lives today and to deal with other people. I mean, who doesn't know family members, friends, anybody who's anxious today? I mean, let's let's get it straight. So that being the case, we need to be able to connect with others around their feelings at a minimum. I mean, so, so many questions about anxiety. You know, you've just said we're all going to experience it at some stage to come to. But I think really important to ask you about your title because, you know, most books you expect on this subject to say, banish anxiety, get rid of anxiety, live a life without anxiety, free yourself from anxiety. So this word thrive with anxiety sort of jars. And I wonder why you chose it as a title. Did you think it might kind of make people feel wary? Because what are you saying that you can, you know, that anxiety is a good thing? Yeah, well, there are two things that I'm saying. Number one, I am done with trying to get rid of anxiety. I think that that is actually making things a lot worse today. And the reason why is physiological. The minute we start to feel anxious, if we interpret that as it's a disease, something's wrong with me, I need to get rid of it, you're going to trigger the fight or flight response. And more adrenaline will dump into your system. And that's what's happening. It's a cascade. That's why we have an anxiety epidemic is because normal, healthy levels of anxiety are interpreted as a problem today. And we need to reset that expectation that we're never going to feel anxious. And we have to start thinking about anxiety and changing on our relationship with this normal emotion. So that's the first thing I'm saying in the book. The second thing is not intended to be, uh, you know, uh, poignant, but it's that once we accept that anxiety is a part of life, there's actually a lot of good that we can do with this emotion. Now, it's not fun. It's not calm. It's not it's not enjoyable, but neither is going to the gym and look how much you can build in terms of muscles, in terms of cardiovascular strength. So emotional strength is something that can be built with anxiety and other things as well can come out of it as well once we accept that this is part of life. Yeah, you say it's not fun, but actually what what you can gain from it is is immensely fulfilling and rewarding and sort of nourishing in a way i would definitely agree with that so in a way i suppose it is fun or life enhancing i mean you use the word enriching enriching yeah. yes fun no maybe for you but panic attacks you know they feel like death and uh I think it's hard to escape that. You know, I want to validate that point that, you know, anxiety shouldn't necessarily feel good, but that doesn't mean that it's harmful. It doesn't mean that it can't be constructive. You know, if you think about building a, you know, if you build a, an office building, the first thing you do is dig down. You know, you got to destroy the ground first before you can start to lay foundations and build things up. And I think humans are the same way in many, in many cases. You, okay, so you just said um, anxiety and, and you went straight to a panic attack. It's not fun. So perhaps we should just de define anxiety because it's sure. a word that is used a lot now. What is anxiety, the definition of it? To understand anxiety, you have to understand fear. Fear is the fight or flight response. It is a physiologically adaptive, healthy process that keeps us safe that motivates us and drives us to fight or to flee or to freeze, in fact, fight, flight, or freeze. Now it's called that response when we're under attack. So if we're under a real threat, we will fight, flight, or freeze automatically. There are automatic processes that take over 
And your fear response will keep you as safe as, and healthy as possible in a situation of actual threat. Anxiety is the same thing, but there's one difference, just one key difference. There's no real reason to fear. The, the fight or flight response is getting triggered without an actual threat being present. Um, you're having an, an release of adrenaline into the system. Your, your body is going through the physiological symptoms of uh, your heart rate increasing, your breathing increasing, muscle tension increasing, pupils dilating to increase your field of vision, stomach uh, activity, uh, digestive system slowing, all in order to conserve energy and to also deploy it in healthy adaptive ways, but there's no actual threat. So it's a false alarm. It's a false alarm of the fear system. It's interesting because it, it might be a false alarm in the sense of the kind of old school notion of a threat. But, you know, when I was reading that, I was thinking it, it, it doesn't help thinking that it's not you know, something coming at you to kill you, it still feels like a threat. So it could be that you have a, a broken down vehicle. I and mean, these days, anxiety comes from a lot of things not functioning as they're meant to, or that you've missed a friend's birthday, or you've missed something important. And those sorts of things, those provoke anxiety that feel, and they feel very real. Or, or for example, if you're ill and you're worried about it being something serious, you know, those sorts of things, they are real. They are, the, you know, the line of anxiety and something real happening is not easy to draw, the line between them. Well, the feeling is real and the anxiety is real and the anxiety is not pleasant, but is it actually grounded in a present, clear and present danger? Um, there's a difference between running late to a meeting and having a train accident where, you know, there's actually life or death threat, which is, which is possible. Um, you're not going to die from being late to a meeting. It might be unpleasant. Hopefully you won't lose your job, but you know, there could be consequences and those could be problematic, but usually the anxiety response is something that's not, it's a little bit exaggerated relative to the real threat, which is in front of you. If you're thinking about it objectively. So how does knowing that help in the situation? Because again, you can be armed with this knowledge, but in practice, it feels still very anxiety inducing, whatever the scenario is. Yes, it does. Where we get into trouble with anxiety, though, is not when we feel the initial symptoms of anxiety. It's the, the how we respond to it. And if we respond to that by saying something's wrong with me, I shouldn't feel this way. Uh, my body is uh, going to overheat and die, you know, that's going to create more of a cascade of anxiety. So I think what's practical about what I'm saying, you know, the best analogy I can give you is in the gym. If you're lifting weights in the gym and you feel a burning in your arms and you immediately think to yourself, oh no, something's wrong. You're never going to lift weights. You're never going to build your muscles. You're never going to be able to persevere. Um, and you're never going to end up with the muscle tone that you want. So Anxiety is the same way. If the minute we start to feel anxious, we're like, oh no, something's wrong with me. I'm dying. I can't handle this. As opposed to like, oh, this is just a normal response that my body's going through. It's a misfire, but it's not anything catastrophically wrong. I think it, it changes our relationship with this emotion. It's a different lens through which we can see this. And I think it's, it makes a massive difference, at least to patients it does. Can I, I'm just going to go back a little bit to a more general question and then zoom in on some of those things you just said and some of the tools and the advice. But 
I, I said anxiety feels like something that we talk about more. People, I think, more and more present themselves with anxiety, say they're anxious. And you've defined what anxiety is. You talk about the age of anxiety, which was actually used to describe a, a post-war age. But you say in the book that the levels and the statistics show that anxiety is, you know, is, is more common now than ever why is that? Or, or is that the case? Or is it that we talk about it more? We share it more? Excellent question. So I answer the second question first, and then we'll circle back to the first. There is definitely more anxiety today. You know, I, the anxiety, the age of anxiety was post-war. Today, it's the anxiety epidemic. And there is objective data to suggest that if you look at the suicide rate, at least in the United States, it's through the roof. This is the second leading cause of death among individuals under age 35, including ages 10 to 15. I mean, one fifth of healthy, healthy American teenagers, uh, high school kids are harming themselves, are engaging in self-injury. The number one cause of disability, people not being able to function at work, mental health concerns, anxiety and depression. Um, the levels of anxiety people have today are substantially more than they used to be. Objectively speaking, if you compare actual the same measures used today as they were 50 years ago, th the numbers are higher. So for all these reasons, I do think it is a really legitimate movement that's happening. Behavioral and emotional health, certainly, you know, in, in the United States, and I would say um, also in, in, in the rest of the Western world, um, including the UK, is, uh, a, uh, is a major issue. Um, the question you asked is why? There's a double-edged sword of recognizing anxiety, depression as problems that need to be addressed. You know, on the one hand, that's created mental health literacy and mental health awareness and programming and resources, and treatments. But on the other hand, I think that we've seen we are seeing diminishing returns. In fact, I think it's iatrogenic at this point and making it worse because we expect to feel good all the time. We expect that we're never going to feel, I'm getting the AI, right? We feel, we expect to feel like that all the time. Um, we expect to feel happy, have equanimity, never to, you know, be off kilter. It's just not realistic. It is human beings are going to struggle at some point in life. It's going to happen. It's not pleasant, but it's part and parcel of what happens. So I think our expectations have actually created much more anxiety today um, and are creating much more anxiety today. It's, I found it so interesting. You say our culture is obsessed with control, with safety and with security. And um, so you sort of touching on it then, but why is that so deeply ingrained? And it, it's pretty hard to, to change that in people, to, to sort of alter that expectation in the Western world, isn't it? Um, it is potentially, I think that we are, I hope we are getting to a tipping point where it's becoming recognized just this last weekend, uh, a colleague of mine wrote an, uh, an opinion editorial in the New York times about how adolescent mental health programs are failing adolescents and pre predominantly for this reason, we're setting expectations way too high. We're pathologizing any levels of distress, and then we're not giving people practical tools to actually manage their emotions. It's much more a lip service that, you, you know, if you feel upset, then, you know, something's wrong. And that message is so incorrect. It's just, it's just not true. I mean, does pathologizing it, 
it and and sending that message lead to over um, prescribing of medication? Yeah. What's what's your what are your thoughts I, on that? I do believe this, and I, I do believe that it's led to over prescription, over diagnosis of uh, subclinical, non clinical issues that people have had, and certainly when it comes to anxiety. I haven't looked at the data in the UK, but in the United States, before the pandemic, there were 92 million prescriptions just for Xanax alone every year, right? A country of 330 at the time, 330, 340 million people with 92 million prescriptions for one single type of benzodiazepines. There are four or five other major types of benzodiazepines, including Valium, including Clonopin. But just Xanax, 92 million prescriptions. This is a big industry with big um, implications for the way we consider mental health. And I, I definitely think we over-rely on pharmacological interventions because we're trying to control how we feel. But sometimes it's, it's just, it's going to get overwhelming. Yeah, okay. So... D- um, you wouldn't suggest that they're wrong in all cases. No, of course not. Yeah, to clarify, you know, more than half of my patients are on are on uh, medications, and I think medications have an important role in if they're used to reduce distress to a level that we can tolerate. That's fine. But if the intention is to get rid of our distress entirely, and in many cases that's the messaging. I think that's sending people in the wrong direction. It sets people up for failure because their expectations are just unrealistic. Yeah, so that, I mean, that really is, as you say, if you take away one thing from this book is not try to get rid of these feelings entirely because you're just, that's not going to happen and let's use them. And really importantly, um, can we differentiate, as you do, between stress and anxiety? Yes. Um, Tell us the difference. Yes, yes. This is another distinction. The one was between fear and anxiety that we spoke about before and the other is stress. So stress happens when you have... Um, not enough resources to handle the demands in your life. And those demands could be financial, they could be time, they could be um, like having to get things done in a certain time. They could be emotional resources. I just don't have the capacity to handle this situation or this relationship right now. And, And stress produces similar symptoms to anxiety, but it's happening for a bit of a different reason. It's not a misfire of the fear system. It's being overloaded. And when when anxiety comes, this is where where this is really the first step. In fact, it's the first tool in my book where you can use anxiety in a positive way. If your anxiety is coming from stress, there are only two solutions to that situation. You can either reduce your demands, or you can increase your resources, or both, I guess. So, to the extent that you do that, you will solve the issue of stress. And often stress is your body's way of saying, hey, you know, David, like, we got to recalibrate, we got to rebalance, we got to sleep more, we have to exercise more, we need to take things down a notch, not work quite as hard. Um, Rebalance, recalibrate. And when we do that, practice that self-care, practice that we can't control everything, that's anxiety working for us. And when we take that as a cue to do that, it can it can radically change our lives. You have these uh, ways to help reduce stress. Many people will be familiar with what they might be. I mean, particularly how to Academy regulars sleep, just non-negotiable. I have had, I can't even tell you how many patients 
who I simply said, because they came in with stress. It, was, it wasn't anxiety. They came in with stress. My go-to, my go-to how-to is going to be sleep. And I've had, I can't even tell you how many patients I've said, sleep eight hours a day for two weeks and then call me back. And they call me back and they don't need any more therapy. It's also often uh, a source of anxiety when people can't sleep in a sort of yes. vicious circle. That is true. Not everybody can do that, in which case there are other strategies that they might need in order to be able to fall asleep, um, which falls into the insomnia bucket. I speak about that a bit in the book, but um, you know, there are certainly solutions for that. So you, so you talk about these and people can read about them, sleep, exercise, social connection being hugely important, switching off, saying no to things more often. You know, apart from sleep, are any of those rivaling to be the most important? I would put exercise on there. You know, if people are stressed out, then it's important to exercise um, to get the endorphins flowing. Also just gives a person time to think. Often people who are stressed out are just doing and they're not thinking and they're making bad decisions and being inefficient and taking the time to just get dressed before a workout, walk to the gym, do a workout, shower afterwards. You know, these are, there's the whole package. If it's done well, I mean, I don't know. If I didn't work out, I'd be a total mess. I'd probably be in the ground. <laughs> yeah, I can very much vouch for that too. And everyone has different things that, that appeal to them. And you shouldn't force yourself, I think, to do one thing that, you know, go running if you hate it. But everyone will have one way, won't they, of reducing stress through some form of, of physical exercise. But that, So that's stress. But anxiety then, which you've defined... How how to use that then as a blessing? What tools do you, uh, you know, because they, are the tools the same? So do you'd imagine that they, they would be? They are not because anxiety, as we spoke before, is about a misfire of the fear system. And one of the key tools is facing one's fears head on called exposure therapy. I speak about right. this in chapter three of the book. And when we do this, exposure therapy is a variant of cognitive behavior therapy, and it involves, like I said, facing one's fears. So if we're afraid of elevators, then we're going to find some, you know, not quite the ones with like a crank, right? You know, like we're, we might, we might avoid those, but, uh, uh, but we're going to go up pretty high and look out the window and, and be uncomfortable. If we're afraid of flying, we're going to be doing that. If we're afraid of social situations and shyness, you know? raising our hand in class and raising our hand at a, at a board meeting or at a, you know, volunteering to do something, approaching um, people who are in positions of uh, authority, uh, making small talk. You know, people are afraid of panic. If they have panic attacks, so then we have ways to induce panic in our, in our office. And it's very unpleasant to go through these treatments, but what happens at the end is incredible resilience, strength. Going through the anxiety it's it's amazing. It, it almost like heats up a person so that they're more better. They're more baked. They're like they're just better able to handle the vicissitudes of life afterwards. But I, I, people, people listening, watching, might feel that's easier said than done. So, say they have an acute fear of flying, and that makes them extraordinarily anxious. And they come to you, or they read your book, and their advice is get on the plane and put yourself through it. They'd say, no, I can't. I'm, I, I can't do it. They, they might not be able to at first, but they could probably drive to the airport 
and they could probably look at planes taking off. They could probably read stories about planes or watch videos of planes. They might be able to go on a short haul flight to, um, you know, maybe not a propeller plane. Like maybe we're not going to put them in a Cessna and put them in the front seat. Like I get that, but you know, uh, you know, maybe if they're, they could do a short haul or maybe they can do a long haul. So I've seen patients who are fine with short hauls and actually fine with long hauls and actually are there, you know, with short hauls, that's really what freaks them out. Cause they, cause you're going up and going down so quickly. Um, so there's, depending on whatever's easier, we would start there and this can be done in uh, over uh, several sessions with a, with a therapist. I mean, there are plenty of people who do exposure therapy around the world, uh, my clinic included. And, uh, this is, uh, you know, tried and tested an amazing way of, uh, of facing one's fears. But my main point is when we do this, it actually helps us to thrive in life. It, it can really create greater resilience, greater emotional strength across the board, not just in that area. Yes, in that area, but more than that, it's, it's, it has more of an effect on the personality, I would say. Yeah, and you also talk about how anxiety can help us to accept ourselves. Perhaps you could explain that. Sure. Yes, another way that anxiety can help us, in addition to recalibrating and rebalancing when we're stressed and becoming more resilient when we face our fears, is by recognizing that sometimes it's just going to be a lot. You're going to have some feelings. They're not going to be comfortable. And to be more accepting and self, self-compassionate is the best word I think I can use. A lot of people, at least in, in the Western society, Western hemisphere, certainly in the United States, are very tough on themselves. They're very tough on themselves. Any departure from my expectations is, a, is not just a little mess up. It's like a colossal failure of, a, of, of my identity. And uh, I think students are taught this. I think this is one of the reasons anxiety is so pervasive among young people today. The expectations not on them, but that's, that they place on themselves is so high that when they struggle emotionally, certainly in terms of performance, it's, it really cuts to the core of their being. And anxiety teaches us that you're going to have a misfire. You know, you're going to, we all have parts of ourselves that we don't like that aren't perfect. And um, can we, anxiety raises the question, can we actually be okay with that? Can we? accept and remain engaged and compassionate to ourselves, even though we're, our fear systems misfire from every once in a while. And does that take essentially the form of the way we ration with ourselves, the way we talk to ourselves, as well as physically the way we treat ourselves? Yeah, certainly. You know, the, I like the physical aspects of treating ourselves. You know, if you're feeling down, feeling upset, that's when we don't want to push yourself extra hard. Um, that's when you want to practice kindness, get yourself a nice meal, go out with friends, um, you know, if you're having a tough day. But you're right, in terms of our cognitions also, like when I feel anxious, when I'm struggling with something, does that mean I am the failure of a person? Or does that mean I'm a normal person who's struggling on this whatever day of the week it is? The latter is so different. It's a different headspace to be in. And anxiety, anxiety calls upon us to be more self-loving and compassionate. You talk about one of your own experiences, which really prompted all of this. And in your introduction, that's where you described the sort of way you talked to yourself. So I'm just interested in your advice on that because it sounds 
you know, may be trivial, but actually the things you tell yourself can be the most important things. Yeah, I'm definitely happy to tell you the story and to and to riff on it a little bit. Um, you know, I myself, when I was when I started Center for Anxiety, I did it in New York City. Even though I was living in Boston, I had this academic position in Boston, and as a business opportunity that came up to create a, an, an office in in New York, and I was commuting in, and it was really tough. It's a four hour commute by train. You know, our trains also don't work so much as here, uh, and you know, on a good day, so four hours each way. I was coming in, spending the day, and then going back at night. And it was a long day. Anyhow, I was coming in. I only had one patient at the time who was on my caseload because nobody knew who I was. And it was frustrating me. I'm, I'm you know, Harvard-educated. Like You'd think somebody would want to see me, and I'd be able to help them. But nobody knew who I was. It was a new market. So uh, here I was. I get off the train. I get out of Penn Station, and I get a text from the only patient I'm supposed to see that day who canceled his session after a four hour commute. So immediately I felt this wave of panic come over me and I'm like, <gasps> you know, and, and then, and then came the judgment, right? Like, hold on, like, David, you're supposed to be an anxiety expert. And here you are, you know, having a panic attack on the street. Like you're, you know, I had that, that, that um, imposter syndrome settling in. And I caught myself and I said, no, no, we are not going down this route. This is exactly the message that you need to send to people. This is a normal response. You just commuted four hours for nothing. Of course, you're going to feel anxious. This is uncomfortable. And you're pushing beyond your limits and you're pursuing a dream. By the way, my office today sees over a thousand patients in any given time. So <laughs> people eventually did find us. But it was a rough ride and practicing that compassion, you know, I was, gave myself extra time to sleep. I started bringing my running shoes to New York. I, you know, booked reasonable hotel rooms where I would stay. And, you know, all of those things made a big difference where I just said, no, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to push yourself to the max. We're going to accept that your anxiety is normal and uh, not pathological. And you're right. That self-talk made all the difference, all the difference in the world to me. And it's so interesting you say this is a challenge. Of course, I'm going to feel anxious because you say, you know, anxiety is a sign of high intelligence, high energy, a capacity to flourish, creativity. And so by sort of changing the narrative there, it's really useful and helpful to people to sort of see it like that. Often easier said than done, but, you know, that's what you're advising. And what about in the way in which we can use it or um, it can be a blessing or help us in our relationships with others, accepting others. You, this sort of talk about knowing yourself, but you also talk uh, in the second part of the book about how it can help us to accept others and our relationships. Yes, definitely. I'm really glad you asked about this. In addition to the epidemic of anxiety, we also are experiencing an epidemic of loneliness. And uh, if you look at college students today in the United States, I saw some incredible statistic that more than 70% will say they were very lonely. They feel very lonely, which is the top anchor on a five-point scale. And I always found that very strange because college students here are social. They're not alone. They live in dorms. They eat in dining halls. They go to class with hundreds of other students. So why are we feeling lonely? And the answer I identified 
when I spoke at Harvard College a couple of years ago, and the head of the counseling center said that the number one reason why students feel alone and why they struggle with their mental health is a single item that they administered to their students, which was, do you have at least one friend that you can speak to in a real way about issues that are going on in your life? In other words, do you have a confidant or a shoulder to cry on? What happens when we open up to people about how we feel, when we actually unburden ourselves and really speak from the heart about our anxiety, about our pain, about our depression, about our sadness, about our struggles, that creates a bond when they're there for us, when the other person is there for us. And that can create, that can buffer us against loneliness and actually increase the connection that we had to a greater level than had we never had that distress in the first place. So would you say, in, in you know, another reflection from what you're describing is that the age of anxiety, epidemic of anxiety, is also very much linked to a digital age? So yes, I would say that. And one of the reasons why the digital age per, is, creates loneliness is because it's so easy to stop a digital conversation. The minute start, things start to get intense or emotional, I start to feel, you know, tears welling up in my eyes, I can just stop my video. I can get distracted. I can close things down. But if you're actually in person with someone, they're going to pick up on, hey, what happened to, over there? And like, can we talk about it? Or it's a lot harder to escape those moments. Um, but it's so healthy. It's just so important to really be real with people. We can't, we can do it digitally. We, we can train ourselves, but it's so much easier to stop it when it feels uncomfortable. And that's, that actually prevents us from connecting. There's so much we, we could talk about, um, but I'm going to move on to the sort of third part of your book, which is fascinating. The third part is about how anxiety can be a catalyst for spiritual growth. And this yes. um, kind of very powerful, I, we talked at the beginning, this sort of nourishing capacity, I suppose, of anxiety enriching, is that you need to tell yourself about the limitations of being human. Think of ourselves as small and in some way sort of insignificant part of something much bigger. And, you know, I've been thinking recently that really does, it really does help. I'm, I'm so glad you raised the subject. You know, I want to be clear, the spiritual components of the book um, and also of my research at Harvard Medical School, which I've done for the last 14 years, they're, I like to say, for people of any faith at all or none. And, uh, you know, the, the main ideas here, they cut across humanity. And, you know, how much, the, one of the questions I like to ask is, is there any human being you have met who, dis, who made a decision where to be born, when to be born, or whether to be born? And uh, the answer obviously is no. And once we sort of move into this space where we understand the limits of our knowledge and the limits of our control and how much is, yes, we make good decisions, I hope, but at the same time, there's, there's so much that is beyond human control. It, it becomes so much so much easier to accept that things are not necessarily going to go well all the time. And that's that letting go helps us to 
have less anxiety, but also to use anxiety in order to grow in this way, in order to develop our acceptance. Could you give us some sort of, you know, um, example, your experience, maybe uh, someone who's come to see you's experience, how this kind of translates into a literal experience? Yeah, sure. So I think when at the core of anxiety is when we can't tolerate uncertainty and uncontrollability. Mm. The reason why people get, um, you mentioned flying phobias beforehand. What what makes it so uncomfortable to sit in a plane for somebody who has a phobia? And the answer is, well, we don't know exactly when the plane is leaving. We don't know exactly where the plane is going. We have an idea. But you don't, and we certainly don't have control. Once that cabin door closes, and once the you know the the flight um, the flight deck door closes. We really don't have any influence. And even if it was open, I don't know how to fly a plane. You know, <laughs> you know, I'm really placing myself in something in someone else's hands. That's an opportunity for us to actually like, okay, willing hands to open up and say, I'm not always in control and that's okay. That's, that's okay. I'm not always going to know. And that's, that's actually a healthy place to be. Can we let go of that? Maybe, maybe certain things are not my responsibility. When we use anxiety as a catalyst to getting into this place of acceptance, it's a game changer. It's just a game changer for, for life. I'm just going to ask, go to a question from uh, Aggie. This is about sleep. Um, we also have to understand that there are different sleepers. You shouldn't stress because you're not able to sleep eight hours. Um, your thoughts on this, there are little sleepers and big sleepers, and there are some misconceptions around sleep that create anxiety. What are your thoughts? Yes, I 100% I agree. You know, I think on average, the number is seven and a half hours. Um, but there's certainly and that's why I picked eight to be conservative. But uh, yeah, if you can't get eight hours of sleep or seven hours of sleep, or you don't need it, um, it doesn't necessarily mean something is is wrong, um, and it's certainly not anything to be stressed about. My, just to be clear, my whole approach to dealing with anxiety and sleep would be no different, is that there are individual differences. And sometimes people have a little bit, they're a little more amped up, and it's not a reason to panic. Um, and uh, certainly around our sleep needs, it would be, it's the same principle. So yes, I agree, and thanks for helping me to clarify that point. What, what about um, as a tool for anxiety, something that is increasingly used these days, talked about, is meditation. Uh, do you yes. think that that is um, a good way of dealing with anxiety or is that more for stress or how, how should one use that? Great question. I like the last way you phrased it, which is how should one use it? Um, because I think there are different ways to use meditation. When people use meditation in order to get rid of their anxiety, I have seen that make it worse. Because anything we're doing to get rid of our anxiety will make it worse. If the intention is to rid yourself of anxiety, you will be disappointed and you will have a resurgence of anxiety. That's simply the way it is. So when we use meditation to pay attention to anxiety, I mean, meditation, at least mindfulness meditation, literally means being mindful or aware. And it actually requires thinking more about one's anxiety, leaning into it more, becoming more accepting of it not pushing it away, not squelching it, not constraining it, but allowing oneself to feel it. Is it in the chest? Is it my heart beating? Is it muscle tension? Where is it? Often we just distract ourselves and we're not even thinking about it. But if we use meditation and mindfulness to become aware of it, that can actually help us to become more accepting and more 
in the moment with our anxiety. That's fantastic. And that utilization of it is certainly something I would, I would encourage. And we touched on this, but you know, Chris mentions different aspects of the digital age. I said, is that what's causing a lot of anxiety? And Chris says, isn't technology and the constant bombardment of information and disinformation fueling anxiety? It certainly is. Um, there, there are things we can do about that. And one of them is limiting our exposure. Uh, you know, I, I like to say half an hour before bedtime, whenever that is, to, to call it quits. And also to have some caps during the day. Um, usually half an hour is enough to catch up on the news, um, unless you work in media. If you work in media, you might need several hours to get really into the details of it. But for typical lay people, half an hour is enough. If it's more than that, then it might be worth putting some limits on it. But the, the bigger issue here, I think, is relates to what you were saying before, Hannah, which is that can we accept that there are certain things we're not going to know, certain things we're not going to be able to control? And if we're if we're checking the news all the time in order to try to like increase our omniscience, you're going to be disappointed because there's disinformation. To as the questioner put, there's so much information we can't process it all. It's you know, I think we need to realistically think like how much do I need to keep up to date and be able to have intelligent conversations with people. And then beyond that, there's diminishing returns. Um, so that's why I like those limits of half hour and then half hour before bedtime. There's also, I mean, we do in the Western world, and you talk about in the book, we live in a much more comfortable world. Yep. Some of us who are lucky enough to be able to say that than we have in the past. But talking about information, news, we are living in a very stressful, perhaps it is anxiety inducing time in terms of the world that we can't control or do anything about. And I'm really interested to hear your reflections because I'm sure anxiety is really being sort of provoked in people now with very stressful situations, very distressing situations around the world. And I'm, I'm wondering what your advice would be to people who find that very difficult to deal with the lack of agency and also the division amongst people who we love. Yes, it is definitely a conundrum and an issue. Um, I think we saw the same thing by COVID, where anxiety shot up by leaps and bounds in a very short period of time. And we're seeing something similar now, just with um, you know war erupting around the world in very um, distressing ways. Um, and uh, you know, one of the things, this is why I mentioned at the beginning that I'm most concerned about those that are flourishing. Because when everything's going well, you know, you're hopping along and things are, you know, fantastic, predictable, um, stable, uh, without its vicissitudes, when, you know, when things are coasting, that's, I think, when we're the most vulnerable to these sort of reminders, if you will, of how limited human beings are. It's, it's contentious though, isn't it? Because I think most people would aspire to be flourishing. We, you know, so you're worried about those people, but then how do you get that balance right? You want to be flourishing and be able to cope with anxiety. Is that an impossible place to be? No, it's not. I think we can flourish and also accept that, in fact, I don't think it's a contradiction at all. I think that the more we can accept how little is in our control and to be more 
mindful of the real distress that does occur in the world, it actually makes us more resilient and more likely to flourish in the long run. Now, it's not fun in the short run, like I said, because facing the distress, dipping into it, having conversations that are complicated, navigating you know, the social environment of the complexities of, of, of social interactions and emotional interactions is perilous. But uh, I think when we avoid it and we simply focus on what's going well, now, I'll share with you, the hardest patients I've ever seen and ever worked with are the children of extremely successful, good-looking, wealthy, highly educated people. Okay, interesting. No question. Why? There's such expectations that they do well, and they don't feel understood by their parents. They don't, they don't feel understood. And often, the parents, I think, are missing out on real emotional attunement. By the way, conversely, I have a number of high-powered CEOs on my caseload, right? Like they'll come in a car service and the car is waiting for them downstairs and, you know, the works. Having gone through anxiety, they are still flourishing, but they are so much more in tune with their families, with their, uh, with their fellow people in the C-suite, with other people in the company. They become softened. They become more emotionally aware. These difficulties that we're dealing with can actually increase our connection with others, increase our humility, and keep us in a just a better headspace so the flourishing doesn't take over and we don't take it for granted. I actually think it helps us to not take it for granted. So what's your advice then to parents? Um, how, how best? Because anxiety, I, you know, I know from people around me, a lot of people's children are experiencing anxiety very young. And what's your advice to, I suppose, do your best to try and ensure that they don't experience it, but when they do, how to how to treat children? You say, obviously, expectations, high expectations do cause it. Yeah, I actually would not say that it's wise to help uh, to expect that kids not feel anxious or to even help them to not feel anxious. I would expect that all kids will feel anxious at some point. And the question then becomes, how do they react when they get anxious? Do they see it as a failure? Do they see that something's wrong? You know, the worst thing to do when a kid is anxious is for the parent to say, oh no, you're anxious. Cause then the kid becomes anxious about the fact that they're feeling yeah. anxious, which just creates the cascade from beforehand, as opposed to like, okay, like they're anxious about X or Y or Z. And that's, that's the way human beings are. Can we try to overcome this? Can we use it as a point of connection with us? Can we become more humble because of this? Can we accept our limits? Can we rebalance and recalibrate? How can we use this in, in, a, in a way that helps us to thrive? And that's obviously, I think, applies as well to when your friends are anxious or anyone around you, your, your own parents, not your, you know, not people's children, but your parents are anxious. And Julie has a question, which, you know, we touched on uh, over prescription, but you, you, antidepressants, you know, specifically, I suppose, what your view is, uh, Julie asks on them to manage anxiety. As I say, we touched on it, but any further thoughts? Yeah. So uh, there are antidepressants um, such as SSRI, serotonin uh, reuptake inhibitors, um, is one very common way of dealing with anxiety. And then another one is benzodiazepines. That's actually a more common one. Benzodiazepines are what we spoke about before, Xanax, Valium, Clonopin, and, 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 and the like. 
those are very fast acting anxiety buster medications. And I, I have more qualms about those than I do the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are antidepressants essentially, because antidepressants don't work right away. They take time and they usually tamp down a level of anxiety from let's just say a six to a four on a scale of zero to 10. They'll take it down from a six or a seven to a four or a three, and then you still have to tolerate the rest. So that's actually very in line with my model and my way of thinking about it. So if I had my pick, like if I had my druthers, to, you know, obviously, like it depends on the patient, but pharmacologically, SSRIs are probably going to be better because they're less effective. And <laughs> um, I, I was also uh, sort of kind of one of the things we haven't touched on in terms of lifestyle or in terms of how we're progressing do you think all this talk that we're having now sleep you know it's becoming it is becoming more important it is becoming more talked about particularly the link between body and mind do you feel optimistic that the epidemic of anxiety is possibly reached a peak and might be going down or or where do you think we are I am optimistic but I do not think we've reached a peak I think that we there's still a very much a cultural trend to trying to get rid of anxiety um, as opposed to learning to accept it learning to integrate it into your life you know this is I didn't mean to be provocative in terms of having you know the title of my book but I think you're right I think it still is a provocative idea that we should not be fighting our anxiety we should live with it, learn to harness it, learn to, you know, parlay it into a positive aspect of our lives. Um, I don't think it's a common message um, yet. And uh, I think we have a little ways to go until we we can do that. I think we have to give up a lot more control and uh, have a lot more humility and um, be a lot braver. So there are definitely some cultural trends. Another person was asking, I talked about meditation. I asked you about meditation, but in terms of physical ways of dealing with anxiety, there's also a lot now written about, talked about breath work. We've talked to some amazing people on the How To Academy podcast, recently Jesse Coomer. Do you think that that can be a very effective way of managing physical anxiety through, through breath? Great question. There are two real functions I think that breath work can play. Number one is... It's very hard to tolerate and to thrive with high, high levels of anxiety. I mentioned the zero to 10 scale beforehand. So if your anxiety is an eight or a nine, even a seven, those are really tough moments to be able to use. And sometimes people through breath work can just calm down to get things into the mid range, four or five or six. And then we can, you know, parlay our anxiety into positive ways. So breath work, I think, can reduce it in the moment and can be a helpful technique for people who are distressed or severely distressed first. The second thing is that breath work can actually help us become more aware of our anxiety. Often what happens, people start to feel anxious during the day and they don't think about it. Then the anxiety continues to build and they distract themselves. Then the anxiety builds more and then they'll pop a Xanax. And then anxiety continues to build and build and build until eventually a panic attack rips through their body. But breathwork can help us to become more aware of lower levels of anxiety. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. I think we have to attend more to this, be able to integrate it into our life at lower levels as opposed to avoiding it and then letting it go through the roof. 
Mm. I mean, that's so interesting. And it's part of knowing ourselves and accepting ourselves and understanding what it is to be human, isn't it? Because we do have this, many of us uh, are unable to imagine our future selves. So what you're saying is be more aware of these feelings, like check, check in with yourself as this is rising before it's too late. You know, similarly, as we do that with our with our car we wait till the very last minute and then we're at the garage rather than potentially taking it in before we're not very good at at looking ahead and addressing something until it's too late I mean perhaps I'm generalizing and I'm just talking about myself but I think that that is a very human human thing yes and that's why I'm concerned about the flourishers who's their car is going great and everything's fine and then all of a sudden you're at the side of the highway and I'm like oh yeah oh there was a check engine light you know 300 miles ago you know 500 kilometers ago Oops. <laughs> yeah. So your advice would be to continually sort of interrogate yourself and others to make sure you're suddenly not flawed. Yes. Lean into the anxiety. If you're feeling anxious or uncomfortable, great. Lean into it. What's it about? Is that stress happening? Are you concerned about something? Is it a misfire of your system? How can you use it in a positive way as opposed to ignoring it, not dealing with it, and it's just going to build and cascade? Just finally, I ask if you had, had. Do you get any pushback? Have you uh, from perhaps the kind of your community you're involved in by using the word thrive? I haven't. Surprisingly, I haven't. My department has been very supportive of it. We've done a couple of book events, you know, one on Harvard campus, and mm-hmm. uh, I um, I think that there's a real. That's one thing which is making me very optimistic, which is within the field of psychiatry. There's an openness to new ideas that I have not seen beforehand. Um, I mean, look at the whole, you know, movement of um, people using uh, hallucinogens. It's, uh, you know, it's it's amazing what people are open to. And with that open-mindedness, I think there's different language, different concepts which are able to come out. And that intellectual freedom is something that has been supportive of my work, I found. Oh, I, I can't not ask you now about hallucinogens and your thoughts because there has been a lot, a lot of talk about that and a lot of very positive talk about that, about the potential when it comes to mental distress and anxiety. What do you think? I think it's early days in terms of research. I think there are definitely positive case studies. Um, there seems to be sometimes, you know, it's what I've learned about it from reading through this is something very interesting about human psychology in general which is that we often get stuck in our patterns of thinking about ourselves, about the world, our patterns of behavior, and we sort of repeat the same 10, 15 ways of thinking and doing on a weekly basis. And it's, you know, you can see patterns between that. What I think these substances potentially do is open us up to like, what about that? What about this? And there's this sort of like, you know, idea like, oh, maybe, you know, I thought point A was point A. It's actually not. It's point C. There's two points before it that I could actually back up and and do or see it from a different angle. So that's where I think some of the, so to speak, magic could happen. But it's very early days in terms of research. So we need we need a lot more before it can be brought, I think, to clinical work. Um, but I'm encouraged. Well, thank you so much. I think you give us so so 
much to think about, to tell ourselves, and of course, a, a great deal more to be read and to discover in your book itself. And an hour is a lovely amount of time, but it's never quite enough time either. Um, so thank you very much to all of you for signing in. Uh, and David, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. This episode starred David Rosmarin and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was produced by Nicole Wong, and our editor is John Doughty. We have many, many experts on mental and physical health speaking at our How to Change Your Life Festival in January, from Ruby Wax and David Nutt to Viv Groskop and Tim Spector. Tickets and more info are both on our website. Until next time, I'm Vaz Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.